This Restorative Justice Life is a production of Amplify RJ. Follow us on all social media platforms at Amplify RJ or sign up for our email list to stay up to date on everything we have going on. And to get the most involved, join our free Mighty Networks community to get connected with others living this restorative justice life all over the world. As far as this podcast goes, make sure you're subscribed, leave a rating and review, and share with a friend to help us further amplify this work. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to This Restorative Justice Life, the podcast that explores how the philosophy, practices, and values of restorative justice apply to our everyday lives. I'm your host, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, all five names for the ancestors, and I'm the founder of Amplify RJ. On this podcast, I talk with RJ practitioners, circle keepers, and others doing this work about how this way of being has impacted their lives. Sean, welcome to This Restorative Justice Life. Who are you? Ooh, ooh, wow, that is a great question. Uh, hmm. I think I'm a person that, uh, I'm an authentic person. I, I try to be as open and honest as I can. Uh, who are you? The, the, I'm also an avid gardener. Uh, believe it or not, I have a, a few fruit trees in my yard uh, that I really take delight in. When the, when the world gets uh, pretty bad, I I, I find my peace there. Who are you? I am a Southern kid at heart. Uh, I'm living in LA right now, but born and raised in the South. I think I bring some of those qualities uh, wherever I go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that's, yeah. that's the way I live. Who are you? I. I am an avid sports fan um, who loves to see where sports is going um, as far as how it is impacting society on a larger scale. Um, I am a researcher, a scholar, a professor, um, husband, um, hopefully having children one day, be a father. Uh, that's, my, that's my path. Wait, who are you? I am the youngest of three. Uh, so I have two older sisters who, who are, uh, I would say, in, we are about 16 and 14 years older than me, respectively, who still think that they're my mother. <laughs> I wish I'd tell me what to do, uh, but I love them dearly. Mm-hmm. Who are you? Hmm. What else can I say? I'm a world traveler. Um, I this past summer, 2022, I went to Paris for a research conference, and I went to Turkey for vacation. I learned a lot. Um, enjoyed the food. Um, can't wait to go to other places this summer. And finally, uh, for now, who are you? I am a person that takes a step back from society from time to time to observe, uh, to reflect, uh, to try to make the best decisions as possible in helping to make society better. Um, And I enjoy that. I'm not a person that is always looking for the limelight, but what I'm needed to be in that light, I can handle. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for stepping a little bit into the limelight today. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode of this restorative justice life because as you listeners know, that we're typically talking with somebody who is doing work around restorative justice explicitly. In this new year of 2023, we're starting to expand some of those conversations, talking to people who have helped me think about how to live my life in a restorative way. And while Sean is not a quote unquote restorative justice practitioner uh, by trade or by training or by profession, um, he is somebody um, as a researcher, professor, um, and like myself, avid sports fan who thinks really critically about um, the way that sports has an impact on society. And, uh, you know, I think a week or two from the date that this podcast is airing, he's got a book coming out called The Black Athlete Revolt, The Sport Justice Movement in the Age of Black Lives Matter. So we're going to talk a lot about um, the history of um, athlete activism uh, over the course of our conversation. But before we do that, Sean, um, it's always good to check in uh, to the full extent that you want to answer the question as we enter this conversation. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Um, You know, um, healthy, whole, um, enjoying life. Um, and anticipating the release of this book. Hey, y'all, before we dive into the full conversation with Dr. Anderson, I want to share a couple things. One, accountability to Fred Cooper, the guest from last week's episode. I did purchase one of the shirts, Pray for Our Children. Um, You can find the link to get those shirts in the show notes of the last episode. But Fred, Mariah, I got y'all. Second, this conversation with Dr. Sean Anderson um, is something different than what we've talked about on This Restorative Justice Life in the past. Over the last 100 episodes, we've almost exclusively talked about the ideas of restorative justice with people who are explicitly doing restorative justice work. But as I'm thinking about living this restorative justice life um, on the daily, I'm thinking about having conversations with folks who are challenging me to think about um, not just the relationships that I have interpersonally, but things that I engage with more broadly. And sports is a big part of my life. Some of you, I acknowledge, probably aren't the biggest sports fans out there, uh, but I definitely want to invite you to stick in and listen to this conversation. Um, We cover a lot of history. We cover a lot of things that are happening currently. Having this conversation definitely energized me to think about building a world full of communities of care where we have the ability and skills, knowledge to build, strengthen, and repair relationships to where we can be rooted in equity and trust. And this conversation with uh, Dr. Anderson really helped spark some of the things in my mind as it comes to sports. So again, it's a little bit of a departure from our typical conversations, but I hope you stick around and enjoy. The last thing that I wanted to share before we jump into the full conversation with Sean is that Amplify RJ has a new community platform. The link to join us is in the show notes where you can get access to our free courses and some of our other asynchronous learning opportunities, as well as community gatherings and discussions about all the things that are going on. Again, link in the description or show notes, wherever you're watching this or listening to this. Uh, Subscribe, like, share all the things now to our conversation with Sean. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who has thought a lot of thoughts and written some things and, um, you know, put things out in the world, both on social media and on uh, platforms like this, um, I know that none of that compares to the beast that it is writing a book, you know, putting it out um, on the, you know, a couple weeks away from release date. How are you feeling? Yeah, 
you know, it's it's interesting. Like a lot of people think that, you know, so for any type of book like this, it's it's uh probably a year, um, maybe fifteen months of research and writing. Mm-hmm. And then you submit it to your publisher, they come back to you and we have a couple more months of edits. And then once it's submitted and it's they approve it, you know, the work is not done. You have to promote, you have to <laughs> Um, you know, stretch yourself in many ways. I, I, I use social media, but not a lot, but I've been using it a lot since my publicist has been telling me to use it over the past few months. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work um, and it's a lot of time and effort. But, um, you know, again, we're at this point a few weeks away from launch date. And, you know, I, I look back on it and, and I enjoy every second of it. Yeah, well... Again, and grateful for your publicist for uh, creating this connection uh, to help us, uh, you know, have this conversation. Um, So, you know, if you're listening right now on release date, you can pre-order. And if you're listening in the future, uh, the book is The Black Athlete Rule, just the sport justice movement in the age of Black Lives Matter. But, you know, both you and I um, are lifelong sports fans. I I think some of the earliest sports memories that I have um, being a child of the 90s is, you know, Sunday mornings after I watch, um, you know, <laughs> you know, whether it's Magic School Bus, Arthur, oh, yeah. like switching over to like the NBA on NBC, like the Knicks and uh, Miami Heat games going on there. And of course, uh, you know, the Jordan comebacks, you know, I was in the perfect age demographic for Space Jam. <laughs> and then like, you know, that second piece, but you know, athlete activism wasn't something that was really on my mind of course like you read you know the biography of jesse owens or of um you know uh jackie robinson and then you know when muhammad ali lights the torch at the uh, 1996 atlanta olympics i'm like as a five six year old data who's that (laughs) and he's like oh well this is who this person is and that's why he's important and like all i took away from that is like he threw his gold medal away. Why? <laughs> right. So like, I don't have like that kind of consciousness. So I'm curious for you, both like your earliest sports memory, but also like how you connected sports and athletic activism when that happened. You know, you spoke with Muhammad Ali. Um, I, I, I want to say I met him, but it kind of technically I saw him in person. Uh, I was a little kid. Um, and Pine Bluff, Arkansas, a very small uh, city, predominantly black city. Um, and he came um, to our univer- our hometown uh, university's uh, parade, homecoming parade. And he was riding in the back of this uh, convertible and he was just reaching his hands out to everyone. And I was able to, like, you know, slap his hand and all that stuff like that. And then, kind of like you, you know, I was asking my grandparents and my sister, I was like, you know, I, I know him <laughs> as, a, as a small kid, but what is his impact? And so it, it took my grandfather, who only had an eighth grade education, but I consider one of the smartest people in the world, uh, taught me about finances, taught me about life, gave me the explanation of, of who he knew Muhammad Ali to be, and as well as the others that you've mentioned, um, that not only was he one of the greats in his sport, but he was quite critical of the U.S., not only when it came to racism, discrimination, and all those things, 
but also tying in sports and religion, you know, as he, of course, joined the Nation of Islam. And that brought about uh, larger conversations as he teamed with Malcolm X. And so um, it was those conversations uh, with my grandfather, who also was an avid baseball fan and introduced me to the St. Louis Cardinals uh, when I was a little kid, when we saw Ozzie Smith, the wizard, taking the field, doing the backflips, uh, Willie McGee and the others. Uh, when we had a lot of black players playing baseball, I should say that. <laughs> and, um, you know, that sparked my thought process early um, about sports. And I went on to play sports. Thought I was going to go pro. Uh, in high school, had the knee injury. You know, the inevitable knee injury. And, um, you know, that kind of took that dream away, if you will. But I think now, that since I still had that love of sport, combined it with research, um, you know, I, I think I'm on a great path with, um, you know, the work that I'm doing today. Yeah. You know, you talk about having this semi-awareness of who Muhammad Ali was as a young person. I think you're a little bit older than me. And so, like, you knew, you know, some things. But, like, as you, as we grew up, like, in the 90s, early 2000s, the athletes that we saw um, weren't really people who were taking stands, right? Um, you know, Michael Jordan is famous for the line, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too, um, valuing, assimilating into white culture, having uh, the broadest appeal possible, right? Getting McDonald's, Coke, um, Nike as like, you know, make me as famous as possible. And, you know, that's had positive impact in some ways, shape or form, building generational wealth for at least one black family. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, we have a black owner um, in the NBA, arguably one of the worst run NBA teams right now, but we don't have to go down that road right now. Um, but like, you know, all that to say, like the athletes that we saw growing up weren't necessarily the ones um, taking these kind of stands. Of course, you have people like um, you know, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, um, Craig Hodges, who were like contemporaries of Michael Jordan, who were kicked out of the league or like blackballed from the league because of... Um, you know, the stands that they took, whether they were anti-imperial uh, for U.S. Um, U.S. intervention overseas um, or protesting racism and police violence, like, those things weren't as publicized and taken as seriously. Um, as you grew up, you know, you continued to, you know, be a fan of sports in general, um, but you also, like, continued to grow up like, as a conscious person. Where did you see the intersection of sports and athlete activism really take root um and in some ways this is just something like what inspired you to like write this book or write the things that you've been writing that like preceded this book yeah so you know it's it's the, the big thing about that is uh we've been hearing for many years decades even that um politics should not be in sports okay but um it's it's been there. It's been uh, read in the history. You know, to take it even further back, we're talking about 1875, two years after the Civil War, the Kentucky Derby uh, was established, and the jockeys who rode those horses were former slaves, mm. right? And you're talking about um, these athletes at the time who rode these horses. Um, were earning what is the equivalent of the millionaire athletes today. The issue, though, 
is when 1896 came about and we had the Plessy versus Ferguson case, um, which, of course, among other things, the most glaring aspect of that case was the separate but equal clause, which brought in all of the, 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 the Jim Crow era. <clears throat> those athletes were essentially kicked out of those sports and uh, became obsolete. And some of them became so um, downtrodden and distraught with that particular verdict for them in sports that you know some of them ended up committing suicide because mm-hmm. it was so much. You know, you're talking about athletes who were supporting their families and building up communities over a hundred years ago to now people probably didn't even know that there were a lot of black jockeys the other day. And so um you know taking it to a more recent account <clears throat> Once, once we got into the 80s, early 90s, that became the commodification of um, athletes, meaning that TV rights, big contracts, uh, endorsements um, became larger than ever before. And so there was this common law concept that if I'm going to pay you all this money, if I'm a team owner, then you just need to do what we say, be quiet. You'll earn your money. And so, you know, without the fear of being ostracized, they did, they did just that. And so for me, um, what got me then into writing this book is the fact that we know that there was a dormancy. You know, we saw the Michael Jordan famous quote. We also saw the Charles Barkley famous, uh, I am not a role model, you know, to which he was trying to clarify later that he was saying that, you know, while I do admire people admiring me, you know, teachers and doctors and lawyers should be admired too. And we get that. But, you know, Charles Barkley has a flair <laughs> for the dramatic. And so, um, but what got me then to point to this is like never before relative to athletes who are in the limelight who are getting paid millions of dollars uh, in endorsements. Several of them now are coming out against um, social justice issues. They are um, using social media, which is, a, of course, a, a powerful platform to get their messages out there. Um, and uh, they are teaming up with various grassroots organizations, social justice organizations to, to, to push their message forward. And when Colin Kaepernick received all that vitriol, for his knee, a lot of people didn't recognize that he had a website, the Know Your Rights website, that showcased all the things that he did with his funds while he was being ostracized. Mm-hmm. And so, because of that, I wanted to uh, pinpoint where we have seen this revitalization, um, recognize the things that athletes have done that are not really covered in the media. And then, you know, also talk about where they can improve because it hasn't been a perfect movement. No, this no. has been guided by, um, and as we're now approaching the 10 year anniversary of when the hashtag Black Lives Matter first appeared. And so this is where we are with this book. Yeah. You know, you brought up Charles Barkley. I am not a role model. And I, like, you know, I was too young to see that commercial, like, as it, happened i've seen yeah. the impact of uh or the, the criticism of it in years 
sense. And, you know, for most of my life, Charles Barkley has been a sports commentator, not an athlete. I think like even now at this point for most of his life. And no, Charles Barkley is not someone who I would want to model my politics after, right? You have these, uh, and we're talking about Black athletes specifically, these Black athletes who accumulate a lot of wealth for their skills. Um, They're propped up as special and um, role models, even though both behind the scenes, many of them aren't people we should aspire to be. We don't want um, any of our children to aspire to be. And, you know, we can talk about all the uh, lack of support and structural reasons why they may choose some of those paths that include uh, drug abuse, domestic violence, um, mismanagement of funds, supporting causes that um, we may, or you and I may or may not deem um, uplifting to um, communities as a whole, the Black communities specifically. But um, why are we expecting this of them? Right. Oftentimes, these are these are young people who have been like singularly focused on um, hitting a ball. Well, not so much today, right? Hitting a ball very far, um, running fast to avoid getting tackled, or like tackling somebody who's carrying a ball, or like putting an orange ball, orange ball, excuse me, in a little round hoop. And so, like, you know, while we appreciate um, like the reallocation of funds and like the platforms that they're giving to certain issues, right? They're not necessarily people who we should look to for <laughs> our our collective liberation <laughs> or advice, right? Um, you know, people talk about, oh, I, I think there's often a double standard of people in the movement um, who are critiquing um, people within our community, right? Um, like, oh, Colin should have done this. Or for those who are like very inside, um, I know, you know, the Players Coalition that came up as the, uh, I guess, this isn't a perfect framing, but like the Malcolm to Callen, to Collins Martin, uh, yes. like, hey, we're going to work with the NFL to, you know, reallocate funds, make things more just and equal um, in, in society. Um, you know, so Malcolm Jenkins um, and others who took that approach, like, it's easy to critique that. But, you know, they're also working from, like, this is the best that we know how to do, um, given the situations that we're in. And so, like, while we can't look to these people as saviors, right, we can appreciate what they do with the platforms that they have while asking them to do more. And I know that's echoing so much of what you've said. Um, You know, what are some of the things that you have been energized by, like, hopefully, and, like, some of the things that you've been, like, discouraged by in recent movements for uh black liberation um by you know the black athletes of today you know um here's the thing what i do appreciate and even though i know that it's going to take a while what i do appreciate is the fact that once these athletes um let's give it a a, a frame of between 2014 and 2020 mm-hmm. um you know, we just saw this galvanization, um, polarized um, athlete activism platform. And what I believe came from that <clears throat> was the fact that now these organizations, these sports leagues, those that are tied with these sport organizations, the sport apparel companies, have to pay attention and be aware of themselves and put together their own sort of strategies. 
um, in the movement. So, you know, you can look at the Nike commercial that Colin Kaepernick did, um, and people can say, oh, they're just hopping on, and, and rightfully so. You can say that because, <laughs> you know, anything for a check, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, but also, though, it, it brings up, um, again, uh, the, the larger conversation of pushing these organizations now uh, into what has been called brand activism, mm -hmm. you know, pushing forward that agenda. Now, here's my thing, and to get to the point that you were talking about relative to some concerns, some, some, some issues. I think the civil rights movement, you know, it was great. Um, it brought about, you know, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, all of these things, um, even helped with immigration later. You know, a lot of people don't want to give that attention to it. And so, of course, we had Muhammad Ali, Althea Gibson, um, Jim Brown, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And that is the standard, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, for athlete activism, even though it occurred, or I should say sport and politics happened before that, that's the standard. And so I think when they then started describing the Black Lives Matter movement as the second civil rights movement, and subsequently athletes started to hashtag Black Lives Matter, then people began to at least those who wanted better from athletes began to say, oh, well, if you're commenting on this, then I need you to be abreast of every issue. Yeah. I need you to donate to every cause. I need you to talk about all of this. And the issue is <clears throat> these sport teams, these athletes, they are in a reactionary business. Uh, there's no standard platform. There's no, there's no the way that they have people who can talk to them about the entire issues. So they just run off. Uh, they'll see something to say something and then they have to retract it because <laughs> they not always have been uh, the correct information. And so those are the things that I think that need to be cleaned up as we move forward in the movement. From the athlete's perspective or from like our expectations of athletes, right? Because I think about LeBron specifically and things that he's had to navigate. I remember the story a while ago and, you know, I'm going to mention Darfur and people are, can date that. I think like 2004, 2005, like one of yeah. his teammates and I'll name check Ira Newble, like, hey, like, hey, I got educated about this issue. Uh, you've got a really big platform. I'd love for you to say something. And like, LeBron never did. Right. Um, Similarly, you know, when oh, man, um, there was a young man um, whose name is escaping me in the moment, uh, was shot in, oh, Tamir Rice was shot in Ohio, right? And there were activists like petitioning LeBron, like, hey, you should sit out um, of, you know, this game in order to, you know, put more pressure. You know, LeBron never made a statement on that, didn't do anything, right? Um, when LeBron is in China and, you know, Daryl Morey puts out the tweet um, about, you know, standing with Taiwan and LeBron uh, comes out with a non-statement statement to protect business interests that he has in China, right? Like people can be critical of that. And, you know, I think, and I was seeing this morning um, something that Angela Davis said about, you know, 
Black people in the U.S. It's our responsibility to be in solidarity with, you know, Indigenous people here. And right, the the audience that she was speaking to, like, didn't really receive that well, right? And so, like, how are we expecting somebody who does not have like the political uh, orientation that Angela Davis has, or like the political orientation of like, you know, our liberation is tied up with each other, and we need to be making decisions that aren't just prioritizing, you know, our bottom line. <laughs> Because, like, LeBron is a company into of himself, right? Yes. Like, how can I, like, be not critical, but, like, still say these platitudes that, like, you know, I could have been Trayvon Martin, right, when he, they do the, the hoodie um, picture, right? Or, like, you know, putting pressure on the multi-billion dollar um, NBA to, like, here, allocate a couple hundred million over the next 10 years to support, like, boys and girls clubs, which, like, is fine, but is not liberatory. like. Like you, you're talking about this gap, and is the gap on like the athlete side, or is it on us as fans and consumers of this who are expecting more of them? No, um, so actually, it's the athletes and the owners of t- and, and well, I should say the organizations themselves mm-hmm. that I believe have more responsibility here. You know, as fans, we are consumers, right, and you know, we, we've heard the thing that, uh, you know, I just want to go watch a, a sports game and not involve myself um, in politics. But my thing is, okay, if you NFL, if you NBA or, or NASCAR, NHL, you know, are dedicating resources to, say, diversity and inclusion and equity or to police brutality or racial injustice, then do it 100%. You know, like you say, don't just say that, okay, I, I, uh, I stand in solidarity and you put the Black Lives Matter logo in your end zone. And mm-hmm. then when a player, uh, I don't know if you saw, uh, Demar Hamlin for the Buffalo Bills goes into cardiac arrest, mm-hmm. on the field after a tackle, that you say, okay, we need to figure out how to get him off the field and play this game. But this man needed CPR. So, you know, of course you couldn't play that game. And so it's the responsibility of athletes to understand the facts, to not pick and choose, because again, yes, you are a brand. We understand that. But if you're not if you're going to pick and choose, then just don't say anything at all, if that's the case. Or go hard for what it is that you believe in and what you see as an injustice in society. And then on the flip end, I would say that it's kind of like that, that cliche where uh, uh, think about a pastor and the pastor sins and then the congregation is like, oh, well, what happened to you when people don't realize the pastor is not God, mm-hmm. the pastor is a person like you and me. And so it's more of the responsibility for the athletes to be knowledgeable and for the teams to hire people who understand the issues to educate um, these athletes so that they don't go out here and, and say things that really don't make sense. You know, I am someone who 
basketball is primarily the sport that I follow, so I can speak in like more specific terms of you know the NBA. Um, in general, you know when you become a billionaire and are the owner of a team, you do not have values towards liberation, equity, and justice. Right. In order to get to the position that you're in, um, you've had to screw a lot of people over. You've had to take first, and then you give back. Um, and I'll credit Xavier Ramey, uh, one of my friends and uh, person who I deeply admire doing this work, you know, when he talks about, when he talks to organizations about, you know, their corporate social responsibility initiatives, it's that idea of, you know, how can you not take first? How can you not be extractive of labor, right? It is not in the interest of, you know, the Steve Ballmers, Mark Cubans, name the billionaire owner, Jerry Jones, is to like create um, an equitable workplace right you know horizontalizing their organizations right um being in partnership you know with their employees not just players but you know other employees right because they're trying to for power accumulate more wealth and so like it is not in their interest right to um help educate their employees about you know liberatory more equitable uh, ways of doing business, more inclusive ways of doing business. It is in their interest to, you know, put out the statements, post the black square, put out the hashtag that, you know, give the appearance that we're doing something. But at the end of the day, like these are entities that are almost solely interested in, you know, growing their revenue, right? We can talk about, you know, diversity initiatives um, as efforts to like, you know, bring in more consumers, essentially, right? Like, how can we, like, be acceptable enough to the broadest audience, right? And now that, you know, there is more of a consciousness in a white dominant, still in a still white dominant um, consumer base that, like, oh, racism is bad, or, like, sexism is bad, <laughs> right? Um, you, you need to move a different way. Um, but is that, like, what we're asking of them? Because like we're not asking, we're, we're not, we don't have the same uh, world values, and like arguably, like I don't know that we can even be looking to them for that, right? There were lots of people, myself included, who stopped really consuming um, the NFL as a product um, a couple years back due to concussions and the violence, but definitely uh, with Colin Kaepernick, and you know. I saw a net positive to my life by not, you know, putting so much energy into um, a Sunday to like consume a thing. And so like, I haven't really kept up. Um, I watched the Super Bowl um, and I'm generally aware of things that happen when like somebody has a heart attack on the field. <laughs> um, but like basketball is not something that I'm going to divest from. <laughs> right. And like, I can feel guilty about that. Um, by continuing to contribute my dollars both through and daily pass um you know the amount of my cable bill let's be honest my parents cable that i still <laughs> watch uh that that goes to espn and therefore espn and tnt and therefore uh you know the league and trickles down to the teams and the players um and you know when i actually do go to games but like do i do i feel guilty about that no but like it's because I don't expect these places to be these like bastions of liberatory <laughs> liberatory space. And like America is racist, 
right? America was built on the foundation of racism and oppression and, you know, capitalism where they're, we're trying to extract, oh, like, people who have are trying to extract value from people who don't. Um, and that's just the game that we're playing. If we're not going to, like, completely divest, what is a sports fan to do? Like, how do you as a sports fan continue to consume with the consciousness that you have? Yeah, no, that's 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 an interesting, interesting question. And I I have to throw another analogy in here relative to that. You know, um, getting to your point of should we have that expectation, knowing what we know about this particular system? Uh, you know, I, I liken that to the, the overall question that. Um, because, you know, of course, black people are not a monolith. We're different in our thoughts and, and deeds. And it takes me to that, that Oscar so white, you know, um, <laughs> sort of small movement that went on where some black people were saying, um, yeah, you know, they need to be more diverse to go and go all these awards. Whereas other people were saying, um, no, I... Why do you concern yourself with this? You know, why do you, why do you need that validation? Right. Why do you need that validation? And I think that particular type of argument then goes into this situation. So let's let's look at this comparatively. Uh, the ABA is arguably the most global U.S. based sports uh, league. Um, and the reason why I'm not saying MLS is because um, it's just now sure. growing here, you know? Yeah. And, like, you the know? Premier League is where people go to, like, consume soccer. Exactly. Sorry, football. No, 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 you're fine. Yeah. And so, you know, as you mentioned, um, the NBA has become, of course, um, more European-based players are now coming to the league and becoming superstars, uh, MVPs. Mm -hmm. Whereas the NFL was trying to do that. And so uh, I remember going uh, to London a few years back when I was uh, I got a team up with some colleagues there about understanding how the NFL was trying to infiltrate the UK. Just randomly asking people what are your thoughts about this. And overwhelmingly so, they were saying, oh, we don't want American imperialism. <laughs> you know, and so um, sports are soft power, right? And because again, China uh, is a big fan of the NBA, you know, and like you say, those business dealings that are happening, um, and we're seeing less concussion type injuries and stuff in the NBA, whereas the NFL has had a slew of controversial issues. Um, one begs the question of, you know, how can we love one sport and hate the next, right? But here's the thing. The NFL, the problem with the NFL, and I'm not sure about the NBA, but at least this is what I know from the research, is that um, for anyone who is on the left or the right, the NFL has largely, at least its owners have donated largely to the right. Uh, mm -hmm. In, in years and, and so the players particularly those in the players coalition kind of you know pushed the NFL for this whole inspired change initiative uh, was saying that 
okay, if you're going to inspire change, then you need to stop donating to people who are against our causes. Okay. Yeah. But we see that the NFL still does that mm-hmm. <laughs> while also trying to expand. And so I think in both the NBA and the NFL are, are like the government said back in the Occupy Wall Street days, are too big to fail despite the fact that we see so many injustices. Um, I, I think now it's having to continue to challenge their system is the best path forward. The players are the players. Um, as much as LeBron has made over his career, um, the, the, the Cleveland Cavaliers owner who lambasted him from leaving to go to Miami in the first place is still going to be that owner long after LeBron retires. So it's the challenge of the systems of these sports leagues that if we're talking about wanting them to be better, if, if we so choose that, some of us don't, some of us don't care, then that's the way to go. Right. Well, I mean, so the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Dan Gilbert, who is whose wealth is generated from what is now Rocket Mortgage, but like um, Quicken Loans, like Quicken Loans, all that, yeah, yeah, like predatory, like like right, um, and so like that person doesn't have our values, right? <laughs> um, and so, are we then trying to create a sports leagues that um, are more equity based, are more um, justice? friendly values aligned um top athletes aren't going to want to play there because the money is not there (laughs) right you know and you know in i think 2011 the nba had a lockout they have a collective bargaining agreement um that expired and they could not come back to terms um and so the season part part of the season was suspended in in that time there were like tangential conversations like oh well what if we started our own league right um, how do we know that the players are not just going to replicate, um, you know, the systems and structures that they know, like, you know, there is a critique of black capitalism that we're not going to go like very deep into right now. Like, um, but black capitalism is black capitalism has been talked about a couple of different ways. One, it's just putting black faces on the systems and structures that have continued to press people. The other way that black capitalism has been talked about and, you know, when people like to talk about like, oh, Tulsa and like that was a bastion of like black small business owners, like keeping money inside the community and like supporting each other. Right. How is that a model for a sports league? Right. Uh, a global um, or at least national sports league. Like you can look to the Negro leagues uh, back back in the day. Um, but how does that scale to um, right now? Right. The. Uh, American League and National League then um, at the time like extracted the best and brightest and like forced them to assimilate into the big bad you know white league um, where you know yes they could get paid more but like the that's why there aren't as many baseball players now right because um, there weren't community um, avenues into baseball for young black young black athletes uh, and so you know at the end of this podcast, you and I are not going to have like the plan for like a liberatory model of like athletes and sports. <laughs> but you know, what like what have you thought of as a way forward for you know? At the end of the day, 
in many ways is a labor issue, right? Um, with folks who may not have the political education necessary to um, create this platform for them to get paid for using their talents and gifts. Um, and then like then defaulting to like the place where their values aren't aligned, but at least they get paid. You know, it takes me into several thoughts about things. So I'm going to go to initially what you were talking about with uh, the Negro roots, for example, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, the root foster created that because, of course, we knew that baseball had this common law practice, uh, particularly when its first commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, that we're going to keep black people out of the game. You know, it was right. rule, but that. And so, um, you know, Branch Rickey, you know, a lot of people, we saw the movie 42 and all that stuff like that, where it was kind of heralding Branch Rickey of the Brooklyn Dodgers of the day to bring in Jackie Robinson. You know, he wasn't doing that <laughs> to end segregation. He was doing that to win over the Negro League fans, you know, mm -hmm. that, and many of the white fans who were actually attending the Negro League games because those were not only sporting events, it was entertainment. You know, uh, of the highest order, and so um, again, you know, we can they can parlay that into this conversation of oh, you know, this is righteous and, and all that, but that's the real thing. And we take this now to what we see today um, relative to sport organizations, for example, um, and how they can be better for society. Um, I think it starts in the communities. Uh, that they're involved in. So, prime example, uh, here in Los Angeles, when um, construction was going on with uh, SoFi Stadium, with several grassroots organizations, local businesses, uh, mom pop stores, who were adamantly against, you know, this move into Inglewood. You know, mm -hmm. we know about gentrification and what, what that does. Uh, but the stadium was built anyway with the promise that the people in Inglewood would not have to pay increased taxes, okay? But as organizations, sport organizations in particular, build these new stadiums, they make these promises about um, jobs and education and, and, and all of that. Now, take it to Steve Ballmer and the Clippers. They're moving from the crypto arena to build their own arena right across from SoFi Stadium in Inglewood. Mm -hmm. And their promise is that we're going to have a 100% carbon-free, uh, environmentally sustainable stadium that's, going, that's not going to cause a lot of issues uh, as far as the health and safety of the people of Inglewood. However, uh, prices jumped from what you would consider $300,000 to $350,000 uh, condo in Inglewood to now eight hundred thousand, <laughs> and so everybody who was staying there who was renting because about eighty percent of the people in LA rent have to move further east to San Bernardino County, Riverside, all of these places, but still have to drive to Inglewood for work, and so you're talking about a two and a half hour commute one way, and you know that's the challenge with these four organizations of they need to either collaborate with these communities and collaborate with these local governments to 
don't build up the communities where they can sustain themselves over time or don't make these promises altogether. Because that's the issue. That's the that's the fault that they have. And these owners don't care because you know they're making money. Like you say, they're making money. They are um seeing the entertainment value. We think again about the infrastructure of Los Angeles and the Olympics coming here in 2028. That's just five years from now. Mm-hmm. And the committee was saying, oh, we're gonna fix the traffic issues. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to fix the transportation issues in LA off of this. But what really is going to happen is that you know, the homeless community is going to be kicked out somewhere further east. Uh, people are going to lose jobs. We're going to have a lot of issues with human trafficking. And um, the aftermath would be that they made money, but it's still a problem with the communities that they serve. <clears throat> and so, my again, thing is, if you're going to be a sports league that's going to be committed to bringing about education and jobs and helping communities, don't just say it, do it. That's all I'm saying. Right. And, you know, we live in a world that it's easy to say like that. Just don't talk about it, be about it, right? And because, like, these leagues and individual organizations were not built on principles of anti-racism, equity, justice. Um, That shift takes time. And I know folks are like, incrementalism is like what protects the oppressor. That's just true. Um, And, you know, when things are as egregious as, you know, Donald Sterling getting caught saying, um, I don't want black people coming to my games or, you know, Robert Sarver of the Phoenix Suns um, has like a litany of uh, misogynist and racist uh, documented HR <laughs> uh, things come up, right? Like they, they are removed from leagues, but, you know, um, Mark Cuban still has his team, right? And, the, you know, the misogyny that went on under his watch, like the hostile work environment for women um, in the Dallas Mavericks organization, like, you know, bring in a DEI person, slap that on, like, hey, fix the problem. But, you know, what are the ways that um, we're actually, like, working towards equity, not just, like, you, like, uh, again, calling back to conversations I've had with Xavier, like, you gave the slaves a day of rest, right? Or, like, you made the, like, working conditions a little bit more tolerable. And, you know, in some ways, like, that's all we can hope for in the places that, um, you know, we go to be entertained. Um, you know, a little bit before we had this conversation, um, Donovan Mitchell, who is um, now a player for the Cleveland Cavaliers, used to be in Utah, one of the whitest uh, places where there is an NBA team, so Salt Lake City. And since he's left, right, now he's able to say some of the things that he wasn't able to say about, like, you know, the racism that he experienced as just a Black resident of Utah, but also, like, you know, um, you know, the star player for the NBA team that was there, right? Like, if all we're asking for, like, what what is it that we're asking for from, you know, the Utah Jazz owner, Ryan something, whose name is escaping me, right? Because while I know that he is um, a recent tech billionaire um, who has, who is more likely to be oriented towards, like, at least in word values of, like, justice, inclusion, equity, right? Like, 
is it even on him to fix like the problem of racism that exists in like the white community that is Utah, right? Um, I'm thinking about a, a couple years ago where um, there was a stand, uh, there was a fan who was like indefinitely banned from Utah Jazz games for uh, either saying something derogatory towards Russell Westbrook or like throwing a water bottle at him. And right, people say like, I paid for that ticket. Um, I deserve to be able to say anything wrong. No, you don't, right? We don't come into your workplace um, as like I like I as a, a visiting like if I'm gonna go like visit your colleague um, in the office next door to you, like I don't have the right to come in, you know, talk shit about whatever you're doing, much less like make racist statements. Um, but like the the goal of their action of indefinite suspension, rather than um, you know, what is the education that we're doing with this person? What are the standards that we're setting for our fans, right? It's one thing to say uh, on an announcement at the beginning of the game, you know, this is who you can call to report um, racism, harassment, uh, misogynist comments, um, and this is the expectation. It's another thing to, like, proactively say, like, in order to attend our games, um, in order to consume our products, um, this is how you need to be, and this is why, right? Um that's very like if I was to bring that to the owner of the Utah Jazz, I imagine like the pushback that one would get is like that is such a large ask. Um, but I also think it's like really doable for a billionaire who has these resources who can allocate to investing in both staff training, um, community education, and you know, it's doable if that's what you want in the world. And if that's not what you want in the world, don't say that you are about that, you know? Uh, and, you know, you know, we may be talking ourselves in circles and like, we don't want to belittle like the small efforts that individuals are making towards equity change and making like these environments more inclusive and welcoming to people who just want to enjoy a basketball game as a black person, as a woman, as, as a queer person right, as, as a person with disabilities, right, like, we want to, like, make those incremental steps, but, um, you know, as fans, like, we know that these organizations aren't really about that, so, you know, how do, how do we navigate? You know, here's the thing, uh, I've, um, not only about, you know, doing the research and, and writing this book and stuff, uh, but also consulted with a lot of um, sport organizations and I sit down and I listen to particularly a lot of the initiatives that they want to push forward. Mm -hmm. And the issue that I've come across um, overwhelmingly with these organizations is that they don't want correction. <laughs> they want you to review some type of um, throw it against the wall and hope that it sticks a strategy that they've put together and say, and just give your approval. You know? um, if you review it and you challenge it and say, uh, I don't know about this. You, know, you just can't say this without really understanding what your stakeholders need. You don't know, so you can't make this claim. Then they're like, oh, well, you know, we we still want to keep it because we think it's good. Well, for who? You? Because you can say that, oh, um, <clears throat> we've sent out messages 
a letter of support to 90% of our black fans saying that we are in solidarity with them, but not make an impact, you know, in that community is essentially a slap in the face. Um, I did a research study on the consumption of baseball among black people I mean, a couple years ago. And um, it was a two-part study. When the first part of the study, um, I interviewed all of the community outreach managers, or I should say for at least half of um, the major league baseball teams. Mm-hmm. And asking questions like, well, how do you measure the success of these programs in the sense of saying, um, you're trying to get young black kids involved in the game, you're trying to um, put together these Jackie Robinson community initiatives and Roberto Clemente. Um, how do you measure the success of these programs? Um, you know, how do you get parents involved? Um, you know, what type of challenges have you faced in pushing forward these initiatives? And again, I, I say this, they don't have a formalized measure of success. No, no team does. And you would think that if baseball is trying to push out these initiatives, then their teams should be on board. Whereas the majority of them said, uh, well, we don't know. We, you know. we don't take any type of record at the end of our programs. We just do. Like, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> yeah. What does that do? And so, yeah, so like all they wanted was the initial press release. There you go. Right. An initial press release. And so um, it's, it's, again, interesting, and I'll take it back again to saying that if you are a sport league that's feeling the pressure from public opinion to do something about, you know, these issues, um, you really need to take the time to evaluate what you're putting out there, you know, uh, longitudinally, you know, so that you won't put out these one-off um, blanket initiatives to say that, um, you know, and, and not say that anybody, can, for example, can, can solve the homelessness issue in a day, but just for example, say, oh, we just donated, you know, 50 blankets to X community over here when, you know, it's 25 degrees outside, you know. <laughs> What, what, what does that do but make you feel better? So that's the issue. And I haven't talked to every sports league so far. I've talked to a few. And I'm seeing a common thread that whatever they put out there is, is it's, it's, it's just fluff. They have to change it. Yeah. I'm thinking about the, the end of the conversation about like what does a sports fan do is like you know educate yourself um agitate where you can and you know make those commitments to yourself um with with athletes i'm thinking about how like you know educate yourself like the balance of like educate yourself and like maximize your earning potential in these like maybe like two to ten years that you have to make a million dollars plus um a year like i'm i'm never gonna say to someone like that's not the right choice for you um but then it just comes down to like what are your values 
and like who are you choosing to align yourselves with? That can get problematic <laughs> when <laughs> you know somebody's values aren't necessarily aligned to like equity and justice, both on like the white athletes or uh, like, and I won't just say like white athletes, but like athletes who hold racist ideas. It's like, oh, this place is too woke. Like, forget about it, <laughs> right? Um, or athletes too far the other thing, like, uh, but like I would say, like, like a uh, Mahmoud Abdul Rose, like a Craig Hodges, uh, like a Colin Kaepernick, um, who like no longer have that platform in the way that they might have if they were participating in, in the league like that. Um, you know, there are no easy answers <laughs> to to like what an athlete is to do, but you know that that value alignment and agitating where you feel you can is you know kind of the space that i'm left with but like it's not a complete and like comforting like space to land yeah you know here's the thing you know we think about um any type of issue that's going on uh in our communities you know people advocate for you know call your local senator call your local congressperson um well these sport organizations have community relations arms that can be reached out to. Um, you know, um, they, albeit these organizations are always looking for something to uh, pump themselves up. For example, um, did some work with the LAPD, <clears throat> and they have a lot of youth sports programs that uh, they are hoping. <laughs> to reduce recidivism, you know, to keep kids out of trouble, gang prevention, all that stuff. Um, but in LA, you know, even with the LA County Sheriff's Department, for example, uh, they were still having a lot of those issues to where they have these programs throughout these the counties and cities. Um, they don't know if it's working because there's no understanding of, of, for example, the kids that they bring in are usually between the ages of uh, 7 and 18, you know? There's no record of how they progress over time, positively or negatively, um, where they go after high school, whether it's a trade or, or, or college or what have you. Um, and so it's just, again, saying that, oh, we just took these group of black kids to the beach and we exposed them to life outside of their communities and we've done something positive. Yay! You know, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that's what you see. And again, um, right, there, there's no... It's unfortunate to say, but as you know, we both mentioned, you know, there's no easy solution. There's no way to fix it in a day. But I think because of all of the issues that many people face in their communities, whether it's like Flint with the water crisis, Jackson, Mississippi, mm-hmm. um, the racism in the South, the microaggressions in other places, people want change now. And as long as we know that many of these sport teams, and owners don't really have a concern for uh, social justice, rather than to have a, a PR piece that says we've 
hired our first DEI person in this space, that we're not going to see it um, again um, tomorrow. But again, what can be done is if they want to do something, they have to, these big leagues have to really understand their stakeholders, which are the, the society at large, the local governments, the vendors that they work with, um, the employees who have issues with some of the things that they do um, to really sit down, hammer our ideas and go from there. Again, easier said than done. But if we make those steps, we could possibly see change. But again, it's not, it, well, it's 11.09 uh, Pacific Standard Time right now. By 11.30, it's not going to change. Right, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Yeah, and with with a statement like this is where we are, like these are like some of the things that like we've we've talked about some progress. We've talked about things that are hopeful. We've also talked about like insurmountable barriers or, or seemingly insurmountable barriers. Like like what energizes you to continue writing about this, um, talking about this, pushing people's thinking. Yeah, you know it's it's amazing to me. Um, for example, the people who had like, reviewed this book early who didn't know about what athletes did in the civil rights movement, which for many people you would think that that's kind of common knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so for them to have understandings and to say, oh, you know, sports is, is much deeper than entertainment, um, you know, to, to see that and to um, push that work keeps me going. I also teach a race, culture, and sport class. I'm teaching this semester. And it's <laughs> actually maybe two black people in the class, and the rest are uh, 20 other students are white. We, I was talking to them about um, I, the Emancipation Proclamation and, and, and how it really was just a glorified suggestion. <laughs> and you know, and how sports became involved, and, and just to see their eyes light up and say, uh, you know, Professor, this is wow, I did not know this. And that keeps me going to, um, you know, continue to write about this, continue to research, and um, continue to hold these, these organizations and players accountable. Yeah. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I'm just laughing at myself and like, and that's it, like, and that's it, like, what else, what else, what else, like, like, I, I, I'm, again, for those of you who have stuck with us this long, I know you're, like, the hardcore listeners of this restorative justice life, and you know that I battle with, um, cynicism, right, and hopelessness, um, I think, and, you know, when I think about hope, like, what do I hope for, like, what energizes me, right, like, I want to be able to take my kids to these places to have like positive experiences, family bonding experiences. I want my kids to grow up in athletic environments where, you know, they are, you know, yeah, developing teamwork, uh, physical ability and, um, you know, self-esteem and like all these things where folks do have an orientation towards like justice and equity, um, fairness so there's like this sense of belonging and you know a couple days after mlk uh junior day right like you know we are building this beloved community um and you know that's what keeps me um 
motivated and hopeful to like continue to push these conversations um as we're talking i'm like oh like is this like a whole nother branch of the podcast feels like admittedly we've been like all over the place nfl nba mlb across like decades and decades and like all of these conversations deserve like um deep dives of their own but i'm like incredibly grateful for um you know your work to continue to push these conversations to folks who either might not have had the awareness of sports history um and the activism that's happened within the black community black athletes um who have been doing this work and um you know folks who are athletes uh or, or sports fans who are seeking like more ways to move towards justice towards equity towards towards this future um anything else before we jump into our quick hitters that you want to touch on yeah you know um even to go back to what you were just saying as far as the hope you know i i have to tend to agree with you as far as uh the, the, the larger picture is to get to the point to where we don't have to talk about this stuff because it's resolved right that's the pie in the sky uh hope uh at least in my lifetime the goal is to uh you know not be in a space to where i have to and i get it a lot out here you know i'm a, I'm a bigger guy to play football to where i'm not walking next to this older white lady who is just grabbing her purse just because she sees me coming and i'm like i'm yeah. right behind the store what you mean i'm, I'm paying too <laughs> you know or um just being at a point to where again I can wake up, like we say, go to a game, um, relax, chill. But then I can also hope for the future that when I have kids, um, if they are exposed to sports, you know, leverage it um, in many ways. You know, consider yourself, um, if you want to go into the owner's box, you know, if that's your path, um, do it, but do it in a, in a, in a righteous way. Um, those are the things that. I consider are important as we move forward this 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 whole life of ours. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, this is why conversation is so great. And you know, when just like things that you said like made me made the wheels start turning for me. And when I think about, you know, building that future as a consumer, right? Um, you know, when we talk about ideas of restorative justice, like it, it's one thing to have these ideals intellectually in your mind um, or when, or practice within the scope of your family, but right, to be this person in the world means like this is relational, right? And so the way to affect change like this, you know, I did say agitate, right? Um, and that that is one way to do it. If you're thinking about like Saul Alinsky's uh, model of community organizing, um, the other way to start thinking about, you know, making these changes is to be in relationship in the places, it, like within the context of the relationships that you have. Like, what are the uh, sports-related relationships that you have that you can be pushing for more equity? You're not going to get a direct line to the um, the owner of any of these sports teams, but right, there is a community relations person that you can probably start to generate a relationship with. Probably a DEI person who you can like LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> stock and you know you know um you know you know start to 
have these conversations, right? And like not coming in that like and and I guess like you get to pick your approach, like coming in with demands or starting with like, hey, I am a concerned person, really appreciates the product that you and your team put out. Um, would love to have a conversation about XYZ. That might be a place to start. Now I'm thinking like, I might do that myself to <laughs> some of our local sports teams here in the greater Los Angeles area. As we've heard, so much about doing this work is the practice, but it's always great to have some fundamentals. So if you want to tap into the Intro to RJ Racial and Restorative Justice course, the link to engage in that learning is in the show notes. If you want to go deeper in your practice or explore other aspects of doing work that is restorative and building a better world for future generations, we have learning opportunities for you too, both in courses and live workshops. If you're in a community, school, or organization that would benefit from this learning, we're more than happy to get on a call with you to talk about how we can support this work in your context. In addition to rating, reviewing, and subscribing to this podcast, amplification of this work also means sharing these learning opportunities with others. So if there are individuals in your life who you want to really know this work in a deep and meaningful way, and you've found the things that you've heard here on this podcast really relevant, please send them our way. That's how we literally amplify the work. Now back to the questions that everybody answers when they come on these airwaves. Oh man, it's been um, such a, a, a good conversation i want to hit get to our our quick hitter questions they're not always that quick um we often ask folks to in their own words to find restorative justice i'm not going to ask you to do that i'm going to ask you to set a vision for justice in sports that we see then we recognize sport and we see it um as a platform to truly Change the world in effective ways. Um, former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, uh, gave a speech where he says, sport has the power to change the world. It has the power to affect change over any other government. Um, while that was his hope back in the year 2000, um, I'm hoping that that vision uh, continues as, again, we try to uh, adjust an imperfect world through uh, sport, sport justice movement. Beautiful. Um, you get to sit down. Uh, we often frame it in a circle, but you get to sit down with four athletes that are alive. Who are they? And what is the one question you ask that circle? Muhammad Ali, Serena Williams, Kobe Bryant, Jackie John Kersey. And, and what is the question you ask that group? What kept you going in your sport? Mm -hmm. As you define your sport, your endeavors, what keeps you going? What keeps me going? Um, You know, (laughs) I have to, I I can't lie to you, you know, when when writing about this type of topic, you know, um, I expect both people who love it and, and, and people who hate it. And, you know, I just feel like there's a, there's a purpose on my life to, to push this work. Um, and every time I try to move away from it, 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 I get invigorated by it, by things that I see in the news. And so um, to see a better society, to see a better society for my, my children, um, for the, the people who have grew up, their children, um, to see 
black people and people of uh, marginalized backgrounds get to the point to where they feel free and valued, that's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Till we're all free. Um, this is this might be a little bit of a stretch, but thinking about you know these ideas of justice, sport or not related, who's someone that I should have on the podcast, and the Uptomi gets them on. I believe mm, that is a great question. It's a lot of people that's come to my mind. Um, have a big, big. Uh, your mind. He's um, in the sport and mental health space. Mm -hmm. um, his name is Dr. Aaron Vincent. He's the sport, um, a sports psychologist at the University of Duke or Duke University. And uh, a lot of his work is um, breaking down the stigmas of uh, mental health among um, athletes and helping them um, receive the attention that they need medically. Um, he's, it's, it's interesting. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you want to get back into the sports space, but he's a, I think, a really great person to talk to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, mental health isn't uh, an aspect that we touch. Like, we've heavily focused on um, race and racism, but right, when we're talking about justice, there are so many aspects, um, intersectional aspects of, um, you know, how we can be making spaces more equitable, um, more inclusive. So um, we welcome that conversation. Dr. Aaron Goodson, if you're listening um, and, you know, you will be getting an email shortly. <laughs> and then finally, um, you know, we've got the book, uh, The Black Athlete Revolt, just the sport justice movement in the age of Black Lives Matter. Um, everywhere books are sold, I imagine. But how and where can people support you in your work? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, wherever books are sold. Uh, but also, people can reach out to me um, via my website, uh, which is uh, www.shawnmarkanderson.com. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter, uh, Speaks, uh the same on Instagram. Beautiful. Love it. Um, of course, all of those links will be in the show notes. John, uh, thank you so much for having a very different conversation than we typically have on this sort of just life. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed myself. Hopefully we have people who've still stuck with us. Um, we'll be back with another episode uh, of someone living this sort of justice life next week. But until then, take care. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast on whatever platform you're using right now. Or if you're old school, tell a friend. It really helps us further amplify this work. You can also support us by following us on our social platforms, signing up for our email list, signing up for a community gathering, workshop, or course. So many options. Links to everything in the show notes. Or on our website, amplifyrj.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.